Hello and welcome to the Sustainability Time podcast hosted by the University of Victoria Sustainability Project. My name is Anne-Marie Pierce and I am your host today. Today I'm recording on Wasanich territory and I am joined by my coworker Ely from the UVSP and we are joined by a special guest, Sid Welsh from Campus Community Garden. Sid, if you're willing and able, we'd love for you to explain who you are and what you do for the university community. And Eli, I'd love to hear more about who you are. Hi. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for having me and um, for welcoming me onto this podcast. I'm Sid, and like you said, I work for the UVic Campus Community Garden. I mostly work in outreach and education. So as an organization, we focus mainly on food security, food literacy, and um, reducing barriers, material and otherwise, between students and growing their own food. So we have about 1.6 acres that we manage just outside of Ring Road, and it's divided up into a bunch of plots that are rented out to students, staff, and faculty. But other than that, we welcome volunteers into the space as a learning opportunity. Um, we run workshops, and currently my favorite thing is that we're creating YouTube video tutorials with different tips and tricks on, on how to do different food-related, food-growing-related activities. Um, so yeah, I'm super passionate about growing food, and it's something that I love to do, but I also love my job because I get to connect other people to that activity as well. Yeah, hi guys. Um, my name is Ely, like Emery said. I am her co-worker, so I'm also a work-study. I'm a second-year geography and economics student, and I'm really excited to be talking about food and sustainability today. Yay! Thank you so much for joining us. Um, this episode today is all about food and how our perceptions of food, growing food, and distributing food have a complicated relationship with sustainability. Here's a brief outline of what this pod will discuss. First, we will start by getting a sense of our perceptions, bias, and or food meanings. Then we will get down into the dirt and discuss the growing season, and we will delve into the act of cultivating food. The last section will analyze the inequalities within the distribution process of food and how harmful greenwashing and food deserts contribute to an overall unsustainable and unstable food system. So let's start with our relationship with food. I want to know... Ely and Sid's, your outlook on food, nutrition, and how we are disconnected from our food systems, whether that's growing or distribution. So I'll go first. My family of six frequented stores like Save On Foods and Costco regularly. Once in a while, my mom would take me to a produce store and we would buy mangoes and pineapples. I grew up driving along streets and that were decorated in cornfields in the Fraser Valley. I knew that some things grew here and some things didn't, but I was never taught how to grow my own food. Nor was I taught how certain commodities like mangoes or bananas don't just show up without any strings attached. It wasn't until I became a vegetarian in university that I started thinking about what is grown locally versus what is imported. 
And it wasn't until the past couple of years that I started thinking about growing my own food, decolonizing garden spaces, and planting for bees. I have only recently learned what Indigenous food sovereignty is and how many people, disproportionately Indigenous communities that live in so-called Canada, live in food deserts. This question, thanks so much for bringing it up. Relationship to food is complicated and so much of that is because of the systems that we live under and how we're told to access food and how we're able to access food. So my relationship to food is no different. Um, kind of sounds like what you, you mentioned. Um, I have similar experiences growing up of visiting big stores and getting most of my food at grocery stores. And, and also I am a white settler. And so I don't have a super strong relationship to place or to land. Um, I grew up in um, so-called Ontario, didn't have a super strong relationship to place either and the, the local ecosystems there. But having said that, I do have a lot of memories of growing tomatoes specifically with my dad growing up and, and the feeling of slicing a fresh tomato from the garden and putting it on a piece of toast um, is kind of one of the memories that like sparked my interest in, in growing my own food because that feeling is just indescribable. After being at university for a couple of years, I've moved through veganism to vegetarianism to intuitive eating, whatever that means, um, and still have a really complicated relationship with food. But, but something that I've noticed more recently and that I want to presence is the fact that whenever I'm actively growing food, so mostly during the growing season, I feel like I have a way better relationship to food. Um, and I haven't really unpacked why that is. Maybe it's kind of obvious, but um, that's something that I've noticed and something that I carry with me and makes me feel more stoked about helping other people to grow their own food because it is, it has been such a healing thing for me. So I'm curious to know about how it can be a healing thing for others. Yeah, like me too. I never really had... Um like experience with growing food or like my family never really grew food I just kind of bought food from like stores such as like Save On Foods or something for all my food so I never knew where any of it came from like obviously it said avocados from Mexico or something but like that's all I knew um but then the other half of my experience with food is that like when I would visit like China we would go to um a lot of like rural provinces just to like just to travel there and then they have a very different approach to food where everything is local like all of their crops are local even like their animals are all local they'll have um lakes where they get their fish from they wouldn't go to oceans to get their seafood so everything's super local so I would go there and everything's like fresh and sustainably harvested and then I would come you know back to Victoria BC and then go back to like my usual way of like going to a conventional grocery store and buying things I'm not really attached to. Yeah, I love that um, that you said that we're not attached to certain things in the grocery store because it's so true. We kind of were disconnected from where they come from, like you said, besides the little sticker that says where it's from. And I, oh my gosh, the little stickers are the bane of my existence because they aren't recyclable. But 
in reality, it's so much more important to know where your food is coming from. And said, I love that you mentioned that homegrown tomatoes are so much better than store-bought tomatoes. It's a, an amazing experience when you get to eat homegrown tomatoes. I feel like it's it's important to like be attached to your food, like you're appreciative of your food because like it's feeding you like it's what's keeping you alive Mm -hmm. and I feel like we're just kind of turning food into like a commodity when reality it's just it just comes from the land and I don't think it's right to just you know see it as like something you can buy like see it as like where you buy it you use it and you're done with it and you have no association with the supply chain or like the workers the farmers that produce the food. I love that you just brought that up because that's something that I think about a lot and maybe my one, my, one of my biggest beliefs around food is that food isn't a commodity. It's a basic human right. And a lot of our problems come from the fact that it's not treated that way. That you shouldn't have to buy food and your, your value as a laborer under capitalism shouldn't, shouldn't determine whether you have the right to eat or not. It's just messed up. <laughs> um, and that's another thing that I think is really rad about the UVic Campus Community Garden because we don't sell anything. A lot of the, the food that we grow, I get to just give away to people and they're like, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> and I get to tell them that you just deserve it because you're alive. And that's such a, a powerful thing. And I think something that I'd like to see more widely too. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I feel like this podcast is really on brand with um, Ely, the podcast you just recorded about sustainable fashion, because it is like, not only uh, the sticker is mentioning where it's coming from, but it's mentioning like the communities that cultivated and grew this food for you. And they may be living in different conditions that you are living in and may have a different standard of living than you have in as urbanites. So at least know like what's going on behind the scenes and that it didn't just pop out of nowhere like that avocado went through a lot of shit before it got to your table so do you have a lot of people coming to the garden that have never grown food before yeah i think i would say that majority of the folks who volunteer with us have never ever grown food before and it's a really interesting experience to to bring them into that space because Um, it's a really slow learning process, I find. And so sometimes folks will come and they'll be like, what's the task for today? And I'll be like, weeding. (laughs) And it seems really strange that you can learn so much about growing food just by by weeding a a large area of the garden. So, but yes. (laughs) What's that like? Like, are they open to like learning new stuff and like realizing that there's so much more work that goes into ground groceries? (laughs) So, so much. And something that I find as um, someone who kind of directs volunteers on on what the, what tasks need to be done is I'm always like, shit, that's a terrible task to just weed a garden for two hours. I hate that I'm like giving random people this task. And I always feel so guilty about it. But everyone who comes to the garden is so stoked. And they're like, you want me to weed? Let's go. I'm ready to weed. <laughs> and so um, it's a really interesting experience to see how grateful people are to be in that space and how excited they are to do the things that I'm like, oh, this is a burden. <laughs> so it's really fun and refreshing. That's awesome. 
So yeah, that's kind of like a good segue into our next section. We're going to talk a bit more about the growing season and which is super exciting because it's fast approaching as it's March and um, people are already starting their gardens inside for the last frost of the year. And only recently um, kind of started getting into growing my own food and I'm by no means at the scale that I'm managing a community garden like you are, but um, I'm excited to hear that uh, you speak on the importance of like in-season vegetables and um, maybe even just like a brief discussion about like livestock and what you think about that topic and the importance of indigenous run farms and um, stigma towards organic versus non-organic and how we can feed our communities more sustainably. Maybe I'll start with livestock because that one just stood out in my brain for for an unknown reason. And I, I think that the way that livestock is managed and um, cared for slash not cared for now is really problematic. And the way that that system operates has created this stigma around livestock and it being really bad for the environment. But it's really important to note that livestock are a part of the system and um, they need to be a part of the system in order for it to function properly. And I really wish we could have chickens on site so badly. I'm like, <laughs> how can we hide chickens in the garden? Where can we hide them? Um, because chickens do so much good for a garden in terms of like bringing nutrients back into the soil, but even like eating bugs and aphids so we don't have to spread chemicals and all of those sorts of things. So. I think that the way that livestock is managed is the problem and not the livestock itself because every creature that exists on this planet is here for a reason and we've just removed them from the system that they're supposed to be a part of and compartmentalized that system in a way that it shouldn't be. I don't love the the term organic as much as I'd like the term regenerative. So I think organic is great and like a good step in the right direction from moving away from conventional farming of monocrops and spraying chemicals and pesticides and stuff like that. So organics, like we're taking a taking a good step um, in the right direction. But I like the term regenerative a lot better because it it takes it that one step further of thinking about leaving the land better than we found it and creating closed loop systems and having animals and livestock be a great like manage pests and bring nutrients back into the soil and all those sorts of good things. Having said that, as an organization, the Uvic Campus Community Garden does only use organic standards in the food that we grow, so um, so that's kind of kind of rad. Um, and yeah, I think I lost my train of thought. There's a lot there. <laughs> that's awesome. There's so much lacking from our relationship as settlers in this area, um, and so much that we don't know that the indigenous communities of our areas already knew before settlers even arrived and sustainable aspects of growing food indigenous knowledge and practices have been uh like they've been practicing that for beyond time that we know I watched a comedy special on netflix the other day and the comedian was like please dear god we have enough milks how we latch on to certain movements as healthy or like even just veganism, like we latch on to that, like us latching on to 
uh, a certain aspect because we don't have that relationship with food and we don't have those ancestral connections to what actually grows in our area. And like in reality, when like nut milks are like so uh, can be like very bad for the environment, they're very water intensive to grow uh, nuts in general. And just a lot of them are imported from California where they have they don't have a lot of water to begin with. So it kind of seems counterintuitive, but we latch on to a lot of things like the organic movement because we don't have this um, deep connection to our food. Yeah, and I, I think that everything that you just said speaks really well to the fact that as consumers under capitalism, we're fed this narrative that our consumer choices are what matter in creating sustainable food systems, like buying the next nut milk or oat milk is way better for the environment than whatever, and veganism and buying local organic produce. And not only are those solutions not accessible, like monetarily, or if you live in food deserts, which I think we'll be talking about later, to a majority of people. So that leaves out those folks from quote unquote contributing to sustainability. But also that's just not what's going to create change. And I think that um, there's actually a poster up outside of our shared office <laughs> that says no solution under, under capitalism. And all of these things that we're talking about really just speak to the fact that we need new systems. Um, and I really love the fact that you brought up like indigenous knowledge that exists in this place and has existed in this place since time immemorial. That is the perfect example of an alternative. An alternative already exists here. Um, and we just, as settlers, need to wake up and snap out of it and understand that the systems that we live under are failing and, and turn to the knowledge that is already here and, and respect that and be grateful for that knowledge that has been it has existed in this place and has survived so much throughout colonization. And I think like a big part of it is that there's so much propaganda within capitalism that eliminates the cultural element of food, like for how the turmeric latte craze is just completely erased the Indianness uh, that exists uh, with spices and turmeric and in particular and i i watched ugly delicious and that is like one of my favorite uh, netflix specials and there there's like a group of indian women discussing how white people have almost recolonized indian food by adopting the turmeric elixirs and by removing all indianness or connection to culture so brings to the point that so much of what we are fed about food is from mostly white people who are not um, connecting certain foods to an indigenous population who have ate these foods for years and years and years and years. Yeah, that just made me kind of realize, you know how everybody is obsessed with like matcha lattes now and it's kind of been deemed as like a basic or like a white drink but it's like yeah. matcha's from like japan like japanese people have been consuming matcha for like ages and ages mm -hmm. and like i can't imagine how japanese people would feel um about like i mean for me if someone were to take like my cultural food and make it like basic like in media like in tiktok and like make it white i wouldn't be very happy about it you know yeah so thanks for bringing that up yeah i agree um i think there's so much in the media these days that 
propagates white supremacy and like continues this colonial approach and especially in food it's a traditional practice to like brew the matcha and like all these connections and like how different matchas are like uh used for different things and that's all like disconnected when someone goes to starbucks and like orders a matcha tea latte when there's no like ancestral practice that goes along with your five dollar drink we talk a lot in academia i think about like this shape-shifting nature of colonialism and how a lot of folks don't think that it's ongoing because it looks very different. But this is such a prime example of how colonialism and colonization is still operating today and still reproducing harm. As white settlers especially, I and we need to not only put a halt to that, but like create a different way of being in this place and he like help heal the harms that have unfolded from colonization and white supremacy and capitalism and all of that bullshit. Yes. Yeah, so I was just, um, while I was researching for this episode, I went on a website called foodsecurecanada.org and there's a few um, like good factual information just in terms of why we need a national food policy in Canada. One of the points was food has been used as an instrument of colonization and oppression in Canada. Still, it is a potential path to reconciliation if we recognize and support the practice of Indigenous food sovereignty. It's kind of on a continual cycle. Like, we won't get out of it until we actually recognize and build policy towards putting foot forward and like actually making steps to reconciliation or decolonization in a better word. Before we leave the growing season, I just want to hit you guys with a fact. The fact is we import 30% of our food, even though we know that growing and processing our, our food has many economic benefits. 30% of our food in Canada is imported. Honestly, like, that's crazy. Like, I, it's not, but it is. Because, like, you never think about that, but it just, it makes complete sense. We grow a lot of the same thing. So even though if we're thinking about, like, the quantity of what we grow in this country, mm. and maybe the quantity of what we bring in is 30%, um, we can't actually sustain ourselves as a closed-looped Canada system right now because we're growing so much of one thing. Right. Which is also detrimental in some ways, not only economically and to like folks who rely on growing, but detrimental to the land and not sustainable if we were to be cut off from the rest of the world. So thinking about like closed loop systems and regenerative farming and diversifying the things that we're growing is how we actually change that, that statistic of 30% of our food is imported. But can, can we go back to the food security yeah, yeah, sorry. For, for a hot sec? <laughs> Yes, food has been used as a tool of colonization and still is a tool of colonization. And I'm just not convinced that policy under the Canadian state is what will bring us reconciliation. Is reconciliation even a thing? And I like that you brought in the word decolonization because that makes so much more room for Indigenous folks to um, take power and control over their own livelihood and culture and ways of being. But we also, as white settlers and settlers in general, um, need to, to be making more and more space for that. And, and decolonization really is about land and giving land back. Because specifically when we're talking about food, 
we're talking about direct relationships to land and continuing to cut people off from their land perpetuates the, the disconnect between them and their food systems and their food knowledge. So when we're talking about all of this and farming and growing food, settlers do super need to be a part of growing food and growing food better and in a good way in this place. But we also need to be talking about Indigenous folks just need to be on their land and living out their food systems and have the capacity and the space and the time and the energy to practice cultural resurgence and mm -hmm. and how that exists outside of the Canadian state and the state's language discourse and policy around reconciliation because that's just not going to do it. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, in terms of just like the word reconcile, like that's just not exactly what Indigenous people have been uh, asking for for hundreds of years since the settlers have been here in so-called Canada. And just the word uh, restoring friendly relations, like that doesn't make sense for how much genocide and how much wrongs have been done to Indigenous people in Canada. Yeah, decolonization, like you said, it's not a metaphor. Land back actually reconnect with their culture and process intergenerational traumas and having the funds and the land is important to that process. Thanks for coming back to that. I, I had so many thoughts and I just didn't want that that little snippet that you said to get lost. <laughs> yeah, totally. What you said, we're going too much of one thing, um, just to support small for farmers overseas, but we have a deliberate policy of exclusively encouraging more immense, more industrial farms at home. That's not exactly, that's not exactly sustainable. Like you just said, we can't sustain ourselves um, with the industrialness and the large corporations that are invested in growing just one thing and for the sake of the economy or for the sake of capitalism I guess. Yeah and then it becomes this kind of daunting thing where it's like under policy in in so-called Canada if only large 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 scale agriculture is supported and receives government subsidies and all of that stuff how how do we promote small-scale agriculture, especially considering what I mentioned before, where it's like, it's not about consumer choices. The only way that small organics farms survive is by charging reasonable prices for their food at farmer's market that is farmer's markets that are then inaccessible to a majority of people. And, and that's why it really is about thinking systemically and also thinking about how, how to exist as much as we can, removed from capitalism and finding those cracks of of resistance where we can be growing food in a way that isn't shaped or changed or managed by policy and capitalism. Thank you so much for joining us on the Sustainability Time podcast hosted by the University of Victoria Sustainability Project. This was part one of All About Food, so stay tuned for part two being released soon. This podcast was edited by Anne-Marie Pierce and Emma-Jane Burian, and the music is by Hook Sound.